Yeah, I'm such a douche. I got a routine. <laughs> I um, I hear that and I'm like, God, I hate me. <laughs> I'm like, no. What's up, everybody? This is Josh coming to you with another episode of the Affiliate Marketing Show. Please be sure to like, follow, and subscribe to stay up to date on all the latest industry industry tips, trends, and affiliate marketing news. I'm Josh from OfferVault.com, the industry's largest aggregator of affiliate networks and affiliate programs and all things affiliate marketing. Today, we also have a man who many believe is the reincarnation of Alexander Graham Bell, Adam Young, as well as a man who is single-handedly causing a shortage of protein shakes and energy drinks worldwide, Harrison Gewurz. And last, but most definitely not least, a man who needs no introduction, but is definitely getting one here today. He's a New York Times, Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and indie-bound best-selling author that Fortune says is a must-read for any entrepreneur. He's been recognized by President Obama as a top 100 entrepreneur under 30, by the United Nations as a top 100 entrepreneur under 35, and by Forbes as a top 10 online marketer. He's the co-founder of Crazy Egg, Kiss Metrics, and Hello Bar, as well as the founder of Quick Sprout, NeilPatel.com, and I'm sure a handful of other projects that I don't even know about. He's helped companies like NBC, GM, HP, and Viacom grow their revenue. The Wall Street Journal calls him a top influencer on the web, and Entrepreneur Magazine says he created one of the 100 most brilliant companies in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, Neil Patel. What's up, Neil? Uh, thanks for having me. I didn't even know I was a Los Angeles Times bestselling author until now. I don't know. Well, I you're found not a it real on... author if you don't, unless you don't know all your awards. I hear that's the... Uh... That's credibility check right there. Times, I didn't know the USA Today. I didn't know the Los Angeles Times. I mean, but... it's all it's all on the book description of Amazon. So I don't know. Maybe check that out. I actually bought the book two days ago, hoping it would get here so I could hold it up. But it's going to get here like right as we finish. But I am going to read it. So just so you know. But let's get into the book. New York Times bestselling author of the book, Hustle, The Power to Change Your Life with money, meaning, and momentum. So I'm curious, Neil, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the process of writing that book was like and what inspired you to actually put it all together? So the thesis behind the book was to become a New York Times bestselling author, which would help with speaking and my career. It didn't really help much. Uh, I co-authored it. I worked with my co-authors on the book. They mainly did most of the writing. I did mainly most of the promotion. And that's how we ended up uh, cranking out a book. I'm curious, why do you think it didn't help? Because just to preface this, I've seen so many great authors uh, create movements with books and the feedback on this one seems exceptional. So like, let's Too unpack generic. that. I think one co-authors, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with my co-authors, but it wasn't just me as an author. So probably didn't help as much. The second is, is it's not related to my industry, right? I spend all my time in marketing. The book isn't related to marketing. So I think those are the two reasons. Are are you going to do another book? No. no? <laughs> Don't ever care to do another one. It's a pain in the butt, headache, uh, not a fun process. What cool. Was... <laughs> <laughs> Glad we opened with it. Great. <laughs> well, Neil, real quick, before we move on from the book, what was some valuable feedback you got from, you know, people that were reading it before you put it out or your editors that you kind of took with you on your journey in the, uh, marketing, SEO, PR space going forward? 
Yeah, so we didn't get a ton of feedback other than either I liked the book or I didn't like the book or I could change this, you change that. Um, you know, people are just telling me, I remember when I was writing the book, they would always complain. The publisher would always complain, hey, you need to generate more sales. You're not getting enough book sales. And I'm like, bull crap. I'm like, we had so many pre-sales and corporations ordering so many books. And they would compare me to other people that they gave a 500 grand advance to as well. And I knew some of those individuals. So I'd call them and be like, hey, dude, how many books did you sell? They'd tell me the number, the real number. And I'm like, why are you guys complaining? We've sold more than them. I'm like, chill out, right? But uh, they always wanted more sales. Um, and it, it was, it was just tough. I would say in just corporate orders alone, I'm pretty sure we sold more than like 50 or 60,000 copies just in corporate sales. I now, when you say corporate sales, do you like, do you mean companies that are giving away at their like industry shows or to their staff? Yeah. Like, what? oh, okay. Interesting. We, we all know I don't know how to read, but I, I bought your book. On, oh, wow. It doesn't want to show on Audible. <laughs> show the fucking logo. Okay, this isn't working. I bought the book and it's not letting me show it. I did Audible, but yes. Um, that's That seems pretty crazy. So they were just constantly just giving you pressure to sell more books, even though you were doing well. Um, it's the New York Times bestseller. Listen, more than one week in a row. So we had enough volume. It's just, of course, they want... I, you can't blame them. They're in the business of just generating sales. Um, and the corporate orders were really easy for me to get because I was just, I'm, I'm pretty decently well-connected in the corporate world. Um, so it's really easy for me to go to corporations and be like, buy $100,000 worth of books and go to the next one, buy another $200,000 book, buy 50,000. Like, it's not hard to get to a million bucks in, you know, book sales just from corporations. But the economics for you as an author and your co-authors are pretty shitty when it comes to actually publishing with a publisher, right? I would have made more money if I self-published. When I just bought your book on Audible, do they give you something like, do you know how much you make from one Audible purchase? It's like not much, right? I have no idea. Wow. I, I didn't care about the economics. <laughs> I did the book for, so I could add New York Times bestselling author to my bio. It is. So, it does look nice on your LinkedIn. I, well, that's I was pretty I, impressed with your introduction. I don't know. I liked it. I was going to ask, Neil, did you like, did you know it was going to get that kind of success before you even published it? Like, it wasn't even a matter of, are we going to become a New York Times bestselling author? It was more just when? Yeah. Well, I knew because I knew I could game the system. So the thing with the New York Times list is they have a formula on how to get there. They look at how many books you get ordered in the first week. So any of pre-sales help with that. They tell you, you know, the rough number. There's a company in San Diego, I don't know if they still exist, called Result Source. So they know like the formula really well. And they're just like, here's how many pre-orders you need. So you get the corporate orders, you, drive, you give them the money. They'll order the books throughout all different places in the world or in the United States and different cities. And then they collect all the books and then they send them to the corporations that ordered them. That's pretty much how most people game the system. I didn't get on the New York Times bestseller list because a lot of individuals bought the book. You know, be fully transparent. That wasn't the case. I got on the New York Times bestselling list because I had a ton of corporations that I knew with really deep pockets that were publicly traded. Just be like, here's 100 grand, here's 200 grand, et cetera. And that adds up super fast when you're trying to sell books. You can sell a lot of volume when people are buying 10,000 copies at a time or 5,000 or whatever the number is. So you say in the book, 
or with the book that it didn't really move the needle for you as a speaker or your career, but the title and I had full transparency. I didn't buy it or read it. Sorry. I, no I, problem. <laughs> I didn't know until I got the topics today. I'll read the book. I, but my question is based on the title, which is the power to change your life with uh, money, meaning and momentum. Do you feel like putting out that many copies of the book actually had a ripple effect that changed people's lives? Because that is an interesting outcome as well. Um, I mean, th that that for sure. I, I I've gotten a lot of people emailing me over the years how the books helped them, and I'm happy about that. Um, I was just talking about it from a selfish standpoint, in which the goal of releasing the book in the first place before I even started typing one word, or my co-author started typing one word, and we started working on it, was New York Times best-selling author in hopes to get more money as a speaker and generate more business. And from that end, it did not help, but. From the end user perspective, got a ton of amazing feedback and majority of the people that uh, have come up to me have said they like it. Maybe a lot of people don't like it and those people don't want to say anything, you know, and it, for those people, I am sorry. Um, but for the majority of people that have come up to me, they have said they liked it. That's really cool. And as far as just be neutral and break it down from a marketing standpoint, the reason I want to be super transparent is a lot of people still to this day hit me up and say, I want to write a book in hopes that it'll help me with things like speaking and whatnot. And I do think it can. It just has to be very industry specific. And I don't know if you need to be a New York Times bestseller. It's more so I think it needs to be very industry specific. Did you sell anything in the book as a backend? Not that I know. Yeah. So I, I you know, I've, I've spoken with a lot of authors and ghostwriters and, and the, the consensus is basically like you don't write a book for any reasonable financial outcome, unless you have a back-end courses. Like Obama or Trump or president, you're going to make a killing or Tim Ferriss, you know? Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. By and the way, Tools of Titans is a, a recommended purchase of your book on Amazon, speaking of Tim Ferriss. Hmm. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Tim's written amazing books. Tim's a great author. Yeah, big fan as well. So when it comes to speaking, I'm curious, do you find that as, because obviously your back end is Neil Patel Digital and selling agency and doing marketing, and that's your real skill set in your organization. Do you find that speaking um, is is a key component in driving new business into your agency? Or what what is the effect of speaking that you have found and how has it evolved over your career? Sure. So it used to be where I charged for speaking. Like, how can I get, you know, when I first started, it was like five, 10 grand. Now it could be 50, a hundred grand for a speech, sometimes less depending on the venue and who the audience is. Sometimes I don't even care for the money. Actually, majority of the times now it's shifted in which I started to speak for money and I got up to seven figures a year really quickly. I think it took like four years to get that just from speaking like my fees which is pure profit, right? Um, that's after speaker bureaus, et cetera, because sometimes they send you speaking gigs and they take a cut. And what I found with my current company, NP Digital, right? It's an ad agency, we're global. I'll go and I'll speak in countries like Mexico City so that way more people in Mexico know we have an agency. Or I'll go speak at a conference in Brazil um, maybe VTech or whatever, you know, the local event may be. And what I found is the money is a terrible ROI versus how much money for me, at least 
I can make in business because my business is a decent size, right? We have like 750 plus employees and just in the ad agency alone. And when you look at it, one contract can easily be not a million dollars, but millions of dollars. And in some cases, eight figures. So you get one of those, you're making more in profit from one of those a year than you would from any speaking gig. And if a customer pays you on average for five, six years, you're really making the residual money, right? So what I ideally like to do from speaking, and I found this to be the ideal scenario, speak at the right events where my ideal clients are there, like the big corporations. And not just the big corporations, but the people who are decision makers at those big corporations. And instead of charging for speaking, try to speak for free. I don't even care if I have to pay for travel, but require them to set up meetings or a small room where we speak just to those individuals and break down case studies and stuff like that. That's fishing with dynamite. We pick up tons of business from that, or we get brand recognitions with those employees and decision makers at those businesses. Eventually they hop around to other companies and you start getting business that way as well. That's done really well for us. That can generate millions and millions and millions a year um, and even tens of millions. So we speak quite a bit. That's been a better strategy for us than just me going to a conference and charging to speak. Hey, Neil. So here's a loaded question for you. What's the biggest thing someone can do to improve their SEO? Neil's so, thinking, yeah, yeah, the camera goes to who's talking. I just want people to know you were thinking. Okay, go ahead. So what I would do if I was trying to improve my SEO, you know, a lot of people say links and links have a big impact. And I'm going to give you two answers. I'm going to give you the answer. The first one is going to be for the majority of the websites out there. And the second one is a little bit creative that most people don't do. So the first one would be update your content. You can do a search on Google for anything. So I'm here in the United States, auto insurance. I'm just going to actually do a search right now. Okay. I can probably even share my screen too. Why not? I'm going to share my screen because it lets me. So check this out. This is the term auto insurance. All right. You can see here, there's 301,000 people in the United States that search auto insurance in the last uh, 30 days. You guys can see my screen. Yep. Yeah. Check this out, 1.18 billion results. All right, so basic math, 1180, 123, 123, divided by 301. That means for every person they're searching, there's 3,920 unique results, right? <laughs> and with chat GPT and AI and all this kind of stuff, you're gonna get people creating more content at mass scale. It's never ending. But where do most people go? page one. All right. And my team always makes a joke. People hide dead bodies on page two because no one clicks there. That's page three. So maybe, maybe if you're on page three, you're going to get some clicks, but it's really page one and page two that are going to gobble up all the traffic, mainly page one. So now you're talking about there's over a billion results and 30 pages that get the majority of the traffic. And the reason I say updating content is if you search for anything on the internet, most keywords have Wikipedia ranking. The reason Wikipedia does so well is because the content is fresh. And none of you guys on the screen here today or anyone listening wants to search on Google and be like, 
yeah, I want to read about digital marketing. Yeah, this article from three years ago was amazing. Like, no, you want something that's up to date and fresh so you know it's relevant and practical for you. So the biggest thing that companies should be doing that they're not doing is updating their content on a quarterly basis for all their money pages. And why I mean money pages, the pages that are driving conversions, getting the majority of the traffic that have the relevant audience. So that's the big thing that I think most companies make a mistake on. And we see this at our ad agency all day long that has a massive impact. The second thing, if I had to list the second thing, and this is creative, Links still have a massive impact on rankings with people creating content, you know, Mascale with ChatGPT or Bard or Ubersus AI Writer or whatever, Jasper, whatever tool people want to use. Content is getting more commoditized and it's really cheap to build, uh, create anyways in the first place, even before ChatGPT. But the big thing is how do you get more links? And most people believe that the best way to get links is through content and infographics and a great product and service. What we found the best way to get links is you take a tool in your industry, whatever industry you are, there's tools for it. Even in fitness, there's calculators and all that kind of stuff. You take tools that people are used to paying for and you create them for free and you just release them out in the wild. And over time, they just build a lot of backlinks, which makes your overall site have a higher authority, which causes you to get higher rankings. I like the tool strategy. I think that's really great. And with ChatGPT, you don't even have to build the tools as, you know, as much. And what I say as much, I'm meaning you don't have to pay people as much. Um, (laughs) The software engineering on ChatGPT is still pretty shitty. It'll get there. Build the game of Pong in 60 seconds. It can do a lot for you. You'll still need some engineers to help you out. But uh, you can do a lot more with less money these days because of AI versus before. Yeah, I really love that. We were actually talking about um, open sourcing and releasing one of our product lines for free uh, at Ringa. Literally last night. Yeah, yeah, literally last night at dinner, we were talking about like we were looking at how much money we make in revenue, how much the team's making in uh, commission on it. And uh, we hit our sales team this morning and just said to them, you know what, guys, I think it would be really interesting to release this product absolutely free for the industry. It'll be a great lead generator. It'll be a great loss leader, you know, and uh, the cost on it is fixed and the infrastructure to support it is extremely cheap and we have to have it anyway. So it's like the perfect storm of a tool, almost like a calculator or something. Um, It has real cost to it, but then you can kind of force uh, the people who want it to go through a questionnaire with a salesperson, like, what do you do? What are you using? Questions that they're just going to be obligated to answer instead of that you have to fish out um, because they're getting something of high value for free. So I, I really, really like um, that strategy. And I'm curious, uh, since we're on that topic of unique strategy strategies, you know, um, you grew up in the performance marketing industry. Harrison did, Josh did, I did. I'm curious, what are your some of your favorite um, super unique strategies that you've used over the years that are like non-typical asymmetric uh, most people did, would have, would have never thought to use it. Like what are, what are some of the cool strategies you you've used? Yeah. So that strategy that you just talked about, we use that heavily give away stuff for free and sell them into something more. Our agency is decent at scale, right? We're a nine plus figure, uh, revenue a year company and 40 plus percent of our leads used to come from our free tools. Now at our size and scale, a lot of our business comes from word of mouth, referrals, RFP, because we're five plus years old and people know we're in the space now. 
Uh, so that strategy has been really amazing for us. Another strategy that's been amazing is buy. So instead of build, we look for companies with web properties or tools that get a lot of traffic, but don't monetize other than through AdSense or no monetization, buy them, pop on Legion on there and then sell them. Um, we did that again last year in February. We bought another tool called Answer the Public for 8.6. It was doing, they said it was doing 100 a month in profit, but they had very little to no employees on it. So when you add employees, it really wasn't doing 100 a month in profit. Uh, we started uh, capturing leads as well. And so far, it's starting to play out well for us. Um, another strategy and going to stay on the buy topic, one of my old startups was called Kiss Metrics. They struggled a little bit uh, for fundraising. Uh, the company ended up pretty much just going belly under. And what ended up happening is, is they needed money, but the website got a lot of visits, like a million plus a month. So I offered them a half a million bucks to just buy the domain. They can still keep the word Kissmetrics. I can use it as much as I want, but I have access to the domain and whatever I want to do. And that worked out really well. It uh, caused our agency to get way more leads because they had our ideal traffic base. Another strategy that I like doing, and this one's boring and ugly, and I don't know why a lot of people don't do it. If you're selling uh, toothbrushes and someone else is selling toothpaste, you should upsell you know, or downsell, whatever you want to call it, their product upon checkout and vice versa. And you know, we consider that partnerships, not really like affiliate marketing, but just straight up partnerships. That drives a ton of revenue for us. And people take those like boring channels for granted. Um, and we find them to produce tons of revenue. If you can just find people who don't sell the same product or service as you, but they have similar audiences. Another strategy that we've been doing for years that's like just been fishing with dynamite is globalization. So at our ad agency, we've announced, I think... I don't know how many regions we have announced, but we're in 16 countries where we've hired leaders. We'll be in 20 countries and then pause for a little bit and then work on getting a lot of them up and running. To keep in mind, last year, we were only in six regions. So we've added a lot of countries that we're in, which means you have leaders and headcounts and they build teams. So what we've been doing is translating our website and transcribing it into other languages and adapting it to the local regions, collecting leads. Uh, most of these regions aren't competitive. And that's been driving a lot of business for us. Um, and then speaking at local events and building up relationships uh, locally. Uh, and yeah. So are, are you building, are you building sales teams in these other countries then too? Or every country. That's awesome. Sales. When I was an affiliate, or that's kind of what I did. I just took stuff out to other countries. So I love that you're doing that in the agency model. That's super cool. Yeah. Majority of people are not in the United States. We tend not to do a franchise model. We want to own it all. Uh, we do have partners in two regions in Brazil and India. We had some locals that own a fraction of uh, those businesses early on that help us out. Uh, eventually we'll probably just buy out uh, their stake and we'll own hundred percent of everything. But yeah, this model has been working out really well for us and we've been having fun doing it. I'm really curious. How do you source the leadership talent in a foreign market like that? Oh, we, we have recruiters that work for us full time. We have a big recruiting team. So all, all we do is our biggest relative uh, compared to Microsoft. We're actually very, very tiny. They probably have more recruiters than our overall employee count. Um, I'm making a guess there, but you guys You're get probably this. right. Yeah. Uh, so for us, what we'll do is we'll look at people who work for competing agencies. Okay. Mm. So like WPP, Omnicom, and we'll look for the leaders who have ran their agencies 
And we look for those leaders who have been at multiple agencies, have continually gotten promoted at multiple agencies and been there for a while, because that means they were valuable to the agency if they got promoted. So if you're at two competitors and you continually got promoted, that means they all both saw you as very valuable and they're happy with you. So the moment you hire them, they usually are able to replicate the same type of growth and same kind of outcome. It just takes a lot of time, but we found it to work really, really well. Neil, on the topic of you know agencies and talent, how should brands be approaching the decision to use an agency versus having their own in-house team? Honestly, almost majority of our customers have a bit of both. They have some internal resources that are doing marketing, and then they have an agency that specializes in certain areas that helps them fine-tune and grow and scale faster. It's just cool. about ROI. You can do either approach. There's no right or wrong. I'm not here to pitch anyone saying you got to use the agency or you got to do in-house. You got to figure out what's best for you as an organization. But it's basic math. You spend a dollar, you better be making more than a dollar. If you're not, there's something wrong in the long run. Short run, sure. You're going to have some losses, but in the long run, it should be profitable for you. And you probably can bring up a team of people and move a brand forward much quicker than than a company can with without with in-house talent, especially if they don't have any. Bingo, especially for large corporations and even for small companies, we can uh, not just do it faster, but we can do it more efficiently. And when I mean efficiently, for example, if you need something very specific for TikTok, if you're a small business, it's really expensive to just hire two or three people like, oh, I specialize in TikTok ads. Oh, I specialize in creating organic content for TikTok. It starts getting really expensive while we have a lot of people that specialize in different things and you may only need a fraction of their time. So it's also more uh, practical and economical. Speaking of the social marketing, um, you know, I follow you on LinkedIn and Instagram and you put out a lot of content there and you have over the years. I'm just curious, um, you know, what do you think is the most valuable for business to business like you're doing now? Uh, is it which channel? Is it the type of content? Is it, you know, the topics? And uh, I'm curious, how do you track the results from things like, you know, the I don't know, the insane amount of Instagram reels that you put out every day. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I film the reels and my team publishes them for me. I'm on a plane most of the time anyway. So I, I, I don't even look at my own feed or log into Instagram on a daily basis. I like checking the direct messages and people ask for help. That's one of my favorite things to do is to help them. Uh, I, I'm a big believer. The key isn't not necessarily the platform you're on. It's a type of content. So I don't post generic content like if I was 20 years old, here's how I would start my life all over again, because I'm focusing on trying to close Fortune 1000 companies, right? Or Global 1000 companies to pay for our services. Those That kind of content isn't going to convince them to buy from me. But if I posted the type of content that says, you know, if I was 20, here's how I'd start my life all over again, that kind of content would go more viral, get more followers and do well from all our tests. We are big believers. If you want to generate revenue, you got to post the right type of content going after the right audience. And that's done really well for us. And then just put it on all the platforms. Because even though LinkedIn may be the B2B network, there's still a lot of people who work at businesses who use Instagram or TikTok and there's revenue to be generated for all of them. Especially if you already created the content, might as well repurpose it. It doesn't really cost you much more. It doesn't take much more of your time either way. I have a question. When you're when you're going through the sales cycle with some of these Fortune, you know, five hundred companies, whatever, how long does it 
typically take like from introduction to getting a contract signed? How long, what's like the longest you've seen and what's like the average? Sure. And to go back on your other question, uh, before I answer that on how do you track the ROI? We believe in just a lot of campaigns are for branding and we don't worry about ROI and some campaigns are for ROI and we track them, but social media, we look at it as just brand building and we don't worry about the ROI. Uh, and it's worked out really well for us and a lot of our clients. The question on sales cycle uh, that you're asking Harrison, it pre, uh, pre the economy really getting crushed more and more and more. Um, I would say our sales cycle was anywhere from three to six months. And now we're lucky if it's a three-month sales cycle, uh, six months to maybe up to a year right now in this economy. And we still do get some of them. Like, here's a great example. I got, my team got introduced uh, to the CMO of a 20 plus billion dollar company four months ago. We're now starting to have good conversations with them. We haven't even got to proposal stage. We're just diving in and figuring out how we can help them, et cetera. So you're looking at if we can close the deal, maybe three, four more months. That's Long sales cycle, typical. but, but big contracts. Or if they're not big contracts, they're tiny with the division of a really large corporation. And then you have the potential to sell into many different uh, of their of divisions which are massive businesses in themselves, right? Like some of these divisions do like 3 billion, 4 billion in revenue a year, right? And they're like a small division for some of these corporations or a mid-sized division. And then you also have the opportunity to sell not just multiple divisions, but multiple regions as well in countries, right? So a combination of both those really make the campaigns scale up really fast. It's land and expand. Neil, oh, go ahead, Adam. Oh, I was just going to agree with him. When we sell to for, to Fortune 500s, it can take six months, 12 months. We've seen know. it takes years. Yeah. The legal Couple. is always messy, takes forever, the back and forth. I mean, we sell software, so yeah. our contracts might be a little bit more uh, sensitive around data. But yeah, it can take a long time. It's similar. And some of our contracts, some people have hit us up two years ago, never signed with us. And then two, three years later, they come and sign. But I would say the averages are you're lucky if we're lucky three months, uh, if we're unlucky a year. I was really happy to hear you say that you do some of the work you do for branding and you don't track the ROI. And it's funny. It seems counterintuitive to hear that from someone whose roots are performance marketing, but we learned. Yeah, but, but, but let's go back on this, right? For one moment. Sorry to cut you no, off. It's all good. If you want a car, what brand comes to mind? Ferrari. Okay. Are you going to Google for a Ferrari or you just know you want a Ferrari? I just know I want it. Okay. If you want to get a new credit card, where do you go? Um, I have great American Express. anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Why'd you pick American Express? Because they have a hell of a brand. They've done the branding. It came first to mind in my brain because of all that branding. I didn't think, oh, just because I want these points. I just thought Amex. If you want running shoes, basketball shoes, football shoes, soccer shoes, where do you go? Adidas. Yeah. So you're, a lot of what people pick is because of the brands they see in these companies being out there for a long, long time, right? One is age and two is brand. And a lot of times you build a brand by just being in business long enough and having a good product or service, but it's how most people actually make their decisions. 
the performance True. marketing side, the SEO, affiliate marketing, pay-per-click, social media, ads, email marketing, et cetera, conversion rate optimization, it's all great. It helps you generate more sales. When you generate those sales and you create amazing experiences, it also helps you build a brand. Does it mean that you should only do branding? No. Does it mean you should only do performance marketing? No. You need a mixture of both. And eventually the majority of your sales as you become an old corporation, I'm not talking about five or 10 years old, I'm talking 20, 30 years old, ends up becoming because people are just familiar with the brand and you've created a good product or service over the years. It's it's not exactly the same, Adam, but we it's not too far off from our trade show strategy. We've built a brand, people see the logo on their badges, on their lanyards, the big booth, and then eventually they need something, they need to track their calls and they we come to mind. It's not quite an Adidas level scale, but Neil's exercise kind of highlighted that for me. Like it's a different goal, but it's kind of the same. It's the same process. thing. You're just doing it at a different vertical. And Adidas has is always going to have a bigger brand than you guys or me, and not to track crap on you guys or even no, like not take it. Yeah. <laughs> we're in B2B. They're in consumer. Everyone can wear Adidas shoes from a little kid to uh, adult before they pass away. And hopefully people live for a long time. A little superstitious and so knocking on wood. But um, we're in B2B. You're not going to have the branding of Adidas does. And the reason being is because the majority of the world is not an ideal customer. So it doesn't make sense for you got to spend that kind of money in branding. We don't need a Super Bowl spot. Yeah. Yeah. You same. have a Super Bowl. Cool. More people know about you, but you just spend a lot of money and got very little results from it for how much you spent. Dude, check this out. We work with so many brands that do Super Bowl commercials. I kid you not, in almost all cases, there's not a positive ROI on a Super Bowl commercial, but they do it for branding and they do it because they're big and they can afford to do it. Does it mean you should do a Super Bowl commercial? I think there's probably better ways to spend money on a performance end for sure. And from a branding end, I also believe there's a way better way to spend money because the cost for Super Bowl ad is so expensive. Uh, when you buy Super Bowl ads, they don't just make you buy the Super Bowl ad. In most cases, they make you buy airtime on other uh, for other programs. Like this year, when people bought money uh, for the last Super Bowl, or was it this last one or the one before that? They wanted people to start, or technically not the last one, the one before that. They wanted people to start buying ads for Olympics and all this kind of stuff. So you're spending whatever millions on the Super Bowl. You're spending another six, $10 million in ancillary stuff for branding. And when you start looking at it, there are just better ways to spend that money, even if it was for branding. I'm curious on the branding front or just marketing in general for your clients. How does your strategy generally change when you look at a client who's doing six, seven, eight, nine figures? Like, obviously, they're going to spend more money as they get bigger. But are there any key milestones as to the size of your client where you adjust the strategy? Does it become less performance focused and more branding focused? Or does it really depend on the goals of the client? Depends on the goals and if they're publicly traded or not, and if they have quarterly earnings and all those kind of things. But keep in mind, we really don't see the six-figure clients that often or the seven-figure clients. Our clients are typically much larger. And majority of our revenue probably comes from multi-billion dollar organizations. Uh, so for us, what we see is mainly just a scale thing. Even when we look at like eight-figure, nine-figure, multi-billion dollar companies, it typically is just a scale thing. And depending on your goals, one quarter over another, you may just shift how you're and where you're spending the money. You know, I know, I know we only have a few more minutes with you. I want to make sure we get this question in as well. But what are your goals for 2023? How do you set those goals and how often do you adjust? Economy's crap. 
expand more globally. It's cheaper to expand and hire in a bad market, although it's very painful cost-wise um, because business is not as good in a bad market. And uh, that is our main goal. So 20 plus countries this year, get the leaders ramped up. And next year, by the end, I want to be in, call it 30 to 35 uh, countries in total, and then eventually get to 50 um, because it's land and expand. We may close a really small deal with a large global 1000 brand in Singapore, we actually recently did, I won't mention the name, but everyone here and probably everyone in the world knows the brand. Uh, they don't do like a 10 billion in revenue. They do tens and tens and tens of billions in revenue uh, and they're consumer. But when we look at that, we do well, we can get many more divisions and many more countries. And when I say it was a tiny account, I'm talking about less than six figures a year uh, in dollars because uh, you have to convert the currency. But even in their currency, it's less than six figures. And I believe over time, we can grow that account to a five, $10 million account, right? So it's just more land and expand because we're dealing with a lot of big brands, like massive brands that spend, you know, hundreds of millions, billions on marketing. A lot of times they don't want to test you out in major markets like the United States because it's risky if something goes wrong. So they'll test you out in a small region. You do well, they'll keep giving you more. And if you outperform the incumbent, eventually they'll give you the majority of it. That's a hell of a backdoor, the way you just described it there, to open in a, a much lower tier country, provide great service to a giant company, and then sell through the company as opposed to trying to land them in the first world market. That's a- It's a very long too. We've only been around for five years. So I think we'll it take another five plus years to really see it in fruition. But well, I okay. like that you're thinking that way. I think most entrepreneurs, you know, they're, they're always- hustling, worrying about today, but that it's that type of strategy that you just described that allows the long game. To, yeah. To take a bootstrapped organization and turn it into a billion dollar business. You really got to, uh, got to think five years, 10 years out, even, even from the early days. Yep. Neil, we got one more question for you before we let you get out of here. And it's another loaded question. How can somebody generate more website traffic? It, you're going to have to take an omni-channel approach. And let me be clear on this. Being on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, your own blog and SEO and email marketing, et cetera, that's not an omni-channel approach. That's a multi-channel approach. When the channels start working together, you're creating a congruent experience from the different channels and creating a great customer experience where they know where they're going to get and they know how the brand's going to be and the services and what to expect no matter where they are or what channel they're interacting with you on. That's an omni-channel experience, right? You got to create that congruent experience. And the way to get the web traffic is you have to be on all the channels. You know, I've known Harrison for a long time. When we started out in the industry, businesses were built on one channel. A lot of them were. Like you could just do SEO and do really well. Or you could say, hey, you want more space on Dropbox? Tweet it out and share it on the social networks and we'll give you free, more free space. And they would blow up. Or Facebook email blast, just, you know, scrape the address book of anyone in your Gmail inbox or Outlook inbox and then send an email out to everyone uh, to just get more people to sign up. Those strategies don't work as well as they used to. Doesn't mean they don't work. They just don't work as well as they the used same. to. Yeah. And all these channels that work eventually get competitive. Doesn't mean they're dead. It just means they're harder to produce results from. So the only way to really do well is you got to take an omni-channel approach and be on all of them and do it consistently for many years, which is probably what not what people don't want to hear, but that's the reality. Consistency is key for sure. 
Yeah. Neil, thank you so much for joining the Affiliate Marketing Show. We really appreciate it. The value that you provided to our users is unbelievable. I really hope we can get you back on sometime in the future. For myself, Josh from OfferVault.com, Adam Young, the CEO and founder of Ringba, Harrison Gewurz, the industry legend, and the legend, Neil Patel. Let's make that paper. Let's make that dough. This was the Affiliate Marketing Show. We will see you next time, everybody.